Good morning, good morning. This is a good day. We're finishing the Gospel of John. 21 weeks in John. It's been a, a great study. Been, I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have. Uh, we started, if you'll remember, before Easter, and we went, we kind of started towards the back of the Gospel of John, and we went up, leading up to the events of Easter, and then we circled back around through that book, and now we're going to actually end on chapter 17, kind of a creative and different way to go through the book, but that's what we're doing nonetheless. And today, chapter 17, is where we'll finish and conclude the Gospel of John. We're going to look at, in this, if you have a Bible, you can open it to John 17, and what you'll find is this prayer, this great prayer, this prayer that Jesus prayed that gives us great insight into God's heart. You know, when you pray, uh, it reveals a lot, doesn't it? I mean, there's two different kinds of praying. There's the praying where we just kind of go through a rote memorized prayer that may or may not have our heart connected to it. And then there's, there's that type of praying that it comes directly from your heart. It's sincere. It's honest. It's real. It doesn't maybe even sound very religious. It's just, it's just honest. You talking to God and it's intimate. And that's the kind of prayer that we see here in John 17 with Jesus. And so it tells us about his heart, his heart towards uh, about what he's about to do in going to the cross, because Jesus is very close to going to the cross. This is a big transitional type prayer in the Gospel of John, and to, and and all of the all of the the time he invested in his disciples leading up to this moment where now there's going to be a turn, there's going to be a shift. He's going to be falsely accused and sent to die on a cross that was not. Uh, anything that he did to deserve that. And so we're going to look at this prayer. We're going to unpack this prayer a little bit. And what you'll notice in John 17 is three kind of movements or sections in John 17. One, one part of the prayer is Jesus praying for himself. And so we'll see some things about that. And then there's this prayer that he prays for his disciples. And he knew that he was going to go to the cross. They were not, not going to have the benefit of him in the flesh any longer. They were probably going to freak out and, and they, were, they were going to uh, not only be grieving, but they would probably be disillusioned and lose sight of what they were called to do and to be. So Jesus prays for them. And then he prays for you and me. He looks out through, the, through time and space. He looks down the road and he sees all the people that will become his followers who will love him and serve him as God. And he prays for all of us as well. And we'll look at We'll look at those three aspects. So open your Bible to John 17, verse 1, and that's where we'll start. After Jesus said this, he looked upward at heaven and he prayed. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Jesus has been given all authority over our lives. And some of us don't like the idea of anybody having that much authority, right? Let's just be honest. We don't like to be told what to do or how to live our lives. And I think if you can make people and, and put planets up in the sky, then it earns you the right to have that kind of authority to be able to call some of the shots, right? 
maybe all of the shots. And so we trust the authority that is in Jesus Christ, and we trust the authority that's transmitted through the inspired word of God through time to help us learn how to live our lives well. And, and so it's the authority of Jesus. And at Life Center North, that's what we believe in, is the, the authority that he has and the authority that's recorded in the scripture. We take our instructions for living life, for running a business, for building a church, for leading a family, regarding our sexuality, marriage, how I can be single, all of those things. We look to the scripture, to the authority that's in God's word and as far as how we should live our lives. So all authority has been given to Jesus. And then it says in verse 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Eternal life is what? It's knowing God. Not just knowing about God. Oh, yeah, I kind of generally believe in a God. Or knowing that Jesus was this teacher that, yeah, I believe that Jesus walked the earth. No, knowing, the word knowing actually was first used in this kind of way when Adam knew his wife and had sexual relations with her, where there was trust, there was intimacy, there was a covenant in place. And it's that type of intimate sharing that God wants us to know him really, really well from the heart, from the spirit. And, and that it affects the way we live our lives. It's that vulnerable place of safety, of rest, where we walk in this intimate relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to have eternal life, is to know Jesus Christ, the one true God. So the part of the prayer that I want all of us to remember and to pray this week is this part that people might come to know him. Well, it starts with us, doesn't it? That I might come to know him better. That I might know him, power of his resurrection, know him intimately. And that others would come into that life because it's so sad when people live outside of the flow of God's grace, his goodness, his love. I want other people to know it too. Jesus was praying for that. The real life will never happen through just collecting more and more stuff. More boats, more RVs, more experiences, more fun. I mean, all that's great, but that doesn't bring true satisfaction in life. What changes our lives is a relationship with God where we experience forgiveness for our sins, freedom from our addictions and our obsessions and our dysfunctions. And that's why God went to all the effort. That's why he endured the, the scorn and the shame and the pain of the cross. That's why he sent his one and only son to this world to die for you and me. It's because he wanted to set us free. He wanted us to live in the freedom and to live in the the place of forgiveness and to live under the covering of his love. And he wants a relationship with us. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to deal with our sin, to deal with our rebellion, to pay the penalty that was due me. The penalty that was due you landed on Jesus at the cross. See, the Bible is filled with paradoxes. It's filled with tension as we read it. And one of those tensions, one of those paradoxes is that it took death to bring life. It took the death of God's one and only son 
to bring life to you and me. Life on this earth and life eternal. Then starting in verse 6, Jesus starts to pray for his disciples. He thanks God for all these disciples, all these people that were handpicked, that each person who comes to know God, it's a gift, isn't it? It's not just some decision that we decide we're going to know God. It's this decision where he draws us by his grace. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. We can't boast in any good thing we've done, and we can't even boast in our own faith because it's all a gift of grace that we're, we belong to God. And Jesus is praying about this, and he's saying, man, you gave them to me, and I kept them, and they're yours. And they became the first friends of God who really knew Jesus Christ in the flesh. And his heart was praying for them, knowing that he was going to leave in the flesh. And they were going to need to learn now how to live by the Spirit. And he was, he was entrusting them back to the Father. And you parents get this. I mean, when your kids move out, and you know that they're going to encounter resistance to their faith, they're going to be tested to the core, they might even have this onslaught of temptation and philosophy that's that is going to try to undermine and cut the confidence in God short. And you realize you can't follow them around. And you're going to have to uninstall that GPS you put underneath their car. And, 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 and you'll start to text them and leave them voicemails and they won't call you back for a week. And things have changed. And you, you can't be that personal bodyguard for them on the ball field or in their daily drama. And Jesus is physically leaving. He's going to go to the cross and he's concerned for his disciples. And in verse 11, he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. In other words, help my kids never forget who they are. Help them never forget where they've come from. Help them never forget that they belong. Help them live in my name. Help them live by those godly values that have been placed in them. Now listen to this in verse 14. He said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The paradox, the tension that we live in as Christians, Jesus was praying that you keep them in the world, but they are not of the world. And when Jesus refers to the world here, he's talking about the system and the values of this world where there is no moral compass. There is no absolute truth. Where everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. He's talking about a world living in rebellion to God. And where is that? Where is that world? Well, that world's not just out there, is it? That world can be right in here. It's inside the human heart. It's not just cleaning up the outside of the cup and the outside of our life so we look a little shinier, look a little better. No, it's that 
that there's a world that without a change of heart, without a new heart, a new spirit, without being born again, without coming into right relationship with Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, see, we're all doomed. We're all destined to a place that's not good and, and, and to judgment. But thanks be to God that he sent his son. And Jesus prayed a prayer over his followers, not not of hyper-control or of insulation from the world, but that they would need to live in the world, but be protected from evil. Some forms of Christianity teach that you pull out of the world if you want to be a true Christian, if you want to really walk with God. You've got to pull yourself away from every aspect of corruptness and evil and people, and you, you insulate. And some parents parent that way, right? Hyper, protective, always trying to control every possible variable so kids never have to experience temptation, never have to experience anything that would put them in that place of tension. And some of you were raised in hyper-religious homes, told that the devil is in the culture, you know, that you, 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 need to, you don't drink, you don't dance, you don't chew, you don't hang out with kids who do. You don't listen to rock music because Satan invented that heavy metal stuff, you know. And then if you do the right things, then you feel better about yourself and you feel like, I guess I'm good with God, you know, because it's based on all the things I don't do and some of the things that I do. Then we become adults, we adopt this kind of list of legalistic rules that become our checklist of how godly we either are or are not. Most Christians, for example, have very few non-Christian friends, and that, over time, can become a a huge problem. Because to the extent that we have no non-Christian friends, to that extent, we do not look like Jesus any longer. You don't become more and more like Jesus and the more you pull away from the culture around you. And the reason I say that is because Jesus was immersed in the culture around him. Jesus had people, lost people, hurting people, broken people, who were his friends, who he hung out with all of the time. See, Jesus lived right in the middle of our broken world. Some Christians will say, yeah, but the Bible says in 1, Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians 5.22, you should avoid even the appearance of evil. You shouldn't even allow yourself to be around any compromising situation where people might even project that image on you thinking that you're involved in some bad activity. Now, actually, that's a very poor translation. The KJV translates that appearance of evil in 1 Thessalonians. But if you look at every other translation, that's not actually the best translation. The best, or really look at, look at any, of the, any of the others, they say avoid every kind of evil. Avoid, uh, abstain from every form of evil. In other words, don't do evil. Stay away from evil and don't do evil. That makes sense. Jesus told his disciples to be as innocent as doves, yet as shrewd as a serpent. In other words, he's saying, be street smart, study culture, engage with people, use your brain, but stay innocent. 
Don't be naive, but be pure. Jesus was accused himself of the appearance of evil all of the time. Don't you remember? Remember what the religious right accused him of? Being a drunkard. That means people probably caught Jesus drinking a glass of wine or beer occasionally. The religious right accused Jesus of being a glutton, right? They were out fasting two times a week, and then they would see Jesus, you know, at Flamin' Joe's, eating hot wings, drinking beer. Ticked them off. That made the hyper-religious folks really angry that, that Jesus would, would even think that way. Not only was he hanging out, but he was hanging out with sinners, you know, and he's telling knock-knock jokes and making people laugh. And you remember, you remember he was not only accused of being a drunkard, a glutton, but he was called the friend of sinners. And many of his friends, his dear friends, were prostitutes and IRS employees. He had, he had quite an interesting following of people that were hanging out with him. Now, did Jesus ever sin? No, absolutely not. Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus was tempted in every way, like us, yet without sin. Now, I'm not saying hang out in places where you have a temptation to overindulge for the purpose of reaching people. That makes no sense. I'm not tempted in the least to overdrink. I'm perfectly fine ordering a Coke or a water, maybe an occasional beer. I normally just order water with a lemon, but I have a huge weakness for kettle corn. Uh, I'm serious, I do. And Tisa called me yesterday from the Garland Street Fair. She's there with her sister, says, hey, I'm right here at the kettle corn guide. You want some kettle corn? And I'm like, absolutely, of course. So she buys the big kettle corn bag, brings it home. I just start eating it all afternoon. And then we watched a little movie last night. I'm eating it all into the night. Pretty soon the bag is almost, I told her to hide it from me. And then two hours later, I said, where'd you hide it? You know, (laughs) I went to bed with this huge stomach ache. Now, it's a problem for me. I probably should not hang out at the kettle corn guy, you know, and talk to him and try and win him to Jesus. I probably just need to stay away from that guy. Not good for me. Some of you have a drinking problem, and you just need to admit it. You lean to overconsumption, and your wisest course of action is to stay away from it and stay away from places that encourage overconsumption. See, maybe you need to be at the kettle corn place, and I'll be at Flamin' Joe's. Jesus was a missionary in culture. He's hanging out with people, but with intentionality. He wasn't just some idiot, over-drinker, over-eating, hanging out with sinners, becoming just like them. No, he was building relationships with lost men and women, stepping into their world enough to relate, to build a bridge, but not so much that he became just like them or overindulged. Christians tend to be either too uptight about everything and everybody or too legalistic, too loosey-goosey acting just like the people around you, over-drinking, over-eating, compromising your conscience, your witness. See, we are called to be different, different, set apart, 
That doesn't mean you pull out of culture and insulate yourself and your family and your kids and everything you can from anything around you. No, it means that you live the God life in front of people, with people. And when you go through hard, hard stuff, they see a difference in you because you pray and you get honest with your faults and your failures. And yet you make choices that are different than the culture around you. See, means that when others are opting to look at porn, you aren't. Means when your other single friends are out having sex, you're choosing to wait. It means when you don't feel in love with your spouse anymore, you still stay married and you fight for your marriage. We have to quit making excuses for our freedoms in Christ as if we can do whatever we want, consume as much as we want, and think that we're somehow just relating to the peeps. No, you're not. That doesn't glorify God, and it makes us look weak-willed with no real difference in our life and no mission that we're really living for. God has called us to reach lost men and women, broken people, people who are far from God. They're all around us. Some of us are just too much of the world, and some of us are need to be more in the world, right? Some Christians have backed off so far, they're just, they don't have any connection points any longer. Jesus engaged in culture, and he made friends with those who were far from him. All of us as a staff have been encouraged, including myself, to be pushing the limits on reaching out and really investing in some friendships that go beyond just the the Christian uh, family. And I'm doing that. So let me ask you, what could you do? Maybe even this summer, before the summer's done, what, what, what could you do? Could you throw a block party? Maybe join a bike club? Host a dinner for eight? Just make sure you invite some people who need to be around the Spirit of Jesus. In, but not of. Jesus prayed for protection from the world. Protection. You know what protects you? One of, the, one of the things that helps inoculate you is the Word of God. There's something powerful about the Word that cleanses us, it washes us, it informs us. It gives us spiritual strength and power. It helps us think more clearly. Do you know the Word of God well? Do you know it well? It's accessible. It's, it's right there. If you do know it well, you're in the minority. Increasingly, America is becoming biblically illiterate. Uh, Barna, George Barna has done a lot of research in this area. Multiple surveys reveal the problem. According to 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves. 82% of Americans believe that. And they think it's a Bible verse. Those identified as born-again Christians did better only by 1%. A majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. That's the most important purpose in the universe, in life. Some of the statistics are enough to perplex us. A Barna poll also showed that 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were married. Husband and wife. 
And a lot of people think that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. And that's crazy. We need to study and get to know the Word of God if we plan to be ambassadors for Christ in the world around us. You know where we tend to grow in our knowledge of Scripture the most? It's not in church. It's not even in your personal devotions. It's when you interact with people who are in conflict with the Word of God, people who are questioning it, people who force you to have to think. That's where it's that freshman class in philosophy where the professor tries to annihilate your faith. That's what makes you really get into the Word and start to study it. It's when you interact with people around you that have hard questions. It's when that person pulls out a Bible passage out of context and says there is no such thing as hell. It's when you live in a culture that says if you don't embrace the gay lifestyle as completely moral and acceptable, it means you hate gay people. That's not true. And yet, you need to study, what does the Scripture say? Because culture has a very loud voice. And Hollywood has a very loud voice. And so we need to allow the Scripture to inform us so that when we're in culture... Maybe watching a movie. I love movies. I love film. Film is such an important part of culture right now. And yet, we need to think through a biblical lens. So as you're sitting there enjoying the amazing uh, effects of Avatar, and you're just 3D glasses, and it's just coming at you, you need to also not just be entertained, but you need to be thinking through a biblical lens that the message behind Avatar is a bunch of hooey. It's just whacked, new age. And, but a lot of people never think. They never sit and think and engage with the culture around them. They just place themselves in it and then just let it carry them wherever it's going to carry them. Friends, we need to really be thinking. We need to be engaged. We need to be praying. We need to be involved. Not pulling ourselves out in a way, pushing ourselves into culture. And being students of culture and being missionaries in culture. Living in the tension of faith means that we don't live by rules alone. We don't live by our freedoms alone. We live to love God and love people with our whole heart. We live this thing called eternal life. It's not just for ourselves and it's not just about us. But we're living lives that are attractive to other people. Living lives of self-control, kindness and goodness and love and joy. Not this pickle-faced, uptight, hyper-religious, unattractive life. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But neither is it this, this, this hyper-liberal deal where you take everything to excess. Now, I'm not talking about politics. See, if you're making everybody angry, you're probably doing something right. If the religious right think you're too loose and too compromising and, 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 and the liberal left sees you as not fun enough and you're not really a, a, a good enough partier and you're not, you're not laughing at all the things that they laugh at and you're not selling out your soul, everything they've sold their soul. If you're making them mad and making the religious right mad and you're just somehow living in the tension of the middle, walking with God, chances are you're pretty close to where you need to be. All right, lastly, 
in this great prayer of Jesus, he prays for you and me that we would love each other really well. In verse 23, Jesus prayed this. He said, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know. To let the world know. See, unity helps the world know that something's different about the Christian faith. Something is different about the Christian message. That, that you have sent me and, and, and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, Jesus said, I died for people who were far from me so they can experience life, eternal life. He exchanged his life so that we would experience life. Saying, just don't, don't spend your time arguing about all the wrong things. Don't fight. Don't get all uptight about how, what, you know, how loud the music is or how people dress or whether hats are permissible in church or you know, whether the preacher's too young or too old or whether this or whether... All the dumb things that people get uptight over. Just be one. Don't gossip. Don't do this. Just watch each other's backs. Love each other. Life's too short. Real worship comes from this sincere, thankful heart of love for God. Be unified. Embrace the diversity all around you. The tension is this, that you can have unity without having uniformity. You have unity without uniformity. Everybody doesn't need to be the same, think the same, dress the same, kind of cookie-cutter Christianity. It is not what God is looking for. I love diversity. I love all the different... Sizes and shapes and colors and, and, and personalities, the diversity that God gives us. And this is a very diverse church, and I love that. I thank God for that all of the time. How boring would it be for everything just to look the same and be the same? The every person is embraced by the love of God. The Bible says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to be unified and keep that and preserve that. We are called as missionaries in this world to love each other well so people hear and see a powerful witness of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. So I want to just encourage us in wrapping this up. Let's be praying this week. Praying. Let's be looking for how we can engage in culture to engage thoughtfully biblically, lovingly, in culture and in relationships around us. Let's be a church that is in the world, but not of the world, where the presence of Jesus, where the presence of Jesus is filling our hearts, and then it's kind of seeping out into the hearts around us. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you for the challenge of this prayer. And we thank you, Lord, that you pray for us. We need prayer. Jesus, that you're interceding for us even now. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us, Lord, to just live in the umbrella of your love and to be intentionally reaching out and reaching in to this world that's messed up, so needy, so confused, 
Lord, help us. Help us be missionaries for you. Help us just be ambassadors of your grace. Help our lives look different in a good way because they are different. We just thank you, Jesus. You're not finished with us. You're continuing to work in us. And we invite you, transform us today. Keep working in us, helping us, Lord, because we have, a, we have a lot in our heart that we still need to let go of and we have a lot of change and transformation we still need to see in each one of us. So we, we, we just ask these things in your loving and in your powerful name. Amen.